All right, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. And we return to this 12th chapter today where we're going to discuss the heart and the soul of the Christian faith. This is the most important event that's ever happened in the history of the world. Now, it's fitting that we should read this particular text at this time because in this month we've celebrated Easter, which commemorates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And originally I had intended that I would use this portion of Scripture for the Sunday morning sermon on Easter. But at that time, I felt the Lord was leading in a different direction, and so I didn't come to this passage at that time. But this is a text that could have been used. In fact, a few years ago, I did preach from this text for an Easter service. Uh, it's about This text is about the event that separates Christianity from all other religions of the world, and that is the resurrection of Christ. We serve a living Christ. Now, the death of Jesus on the cross was certainly an important event for our faith. We, we would have no salvation without that. I mean, we would die in hopelessness under the wrath of God. But the death of Christ would be meaningless if it hadn't been for the resurrection. A dead Christ does us no good. As the Apostle Paul said, that there must be a resurrection or else our faith is vain, and he said we're still in our sins. And this is what separates Christianity from all other of the world's religions, and that is that we serve a living Christ. Uh, all the other founders of these great religions are dead, and so their religion offers no hope. But our faith is the faith of the living. Jesus said in Matthew 22, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus meant that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long since died when he spoke that, that they were then and they are now still living because God is the God of the living. God resurrects the dead. And on the night of the crucifixion, uh, before the crucifixion, Jesus said, Because I live, ye shall live also. So I'd like for us to turn our attention to this text in which we find the most powerful evidence in all of Scripture for the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 38, if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Matthew 12, verse number 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold a greater than Solomon is here. Father, thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful sign that Jesus gave that he is truly the Lord of all, the resurrection from the dead, 
Help us as we preach your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you again of the context of this discussion between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. This follows immediately after Jesus had healed a blind and dumb man. And the blindness and the dumbness of this man had been caused by a demon. And Jesus, who has all power in the spiritual world, cast the demon out of this man and healed him of his disease. And the people witnessed this miracle and they were amazed. And so they began to discuss between themselves whether Jesus could actually be the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And if Jesus was the Messiah, then it meant the scribes and the Pharisees were wrong about him and the hearts of the people would be turned towards Christ and they would begin to worship him. They would accept his leadership, which means they would no longer accept the leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, that was too much for the leaders to take, and so they had to have an answer for the miracle. And their excuse was that Jesus had healed this man because he was in league with Satan. He was using the power of Satan to cast out demons rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, as we've studied the previous verses, showed them how utterly absurd that that explanation was. And in so doing, he handed the scribes and the Pharisees another one of their stinging defeats. And it seems like that's always what happened whenever they challenged him on the scriptures. It's always the same result. And further, when Jesus was speaking to them, he he perceived their hypocrisy and he called them a generation of vipers. He knew the poisonous nature of the accusations that were made and he wasn't reluctant to point it out. And it sort of gives you pause for just a moment to hear what Jesus thought about false teachers. He's none too kind about this issue because anyone who is led astray by a false teacher will lose his soul in the fires of hell. So you can't pass over this. I mean, you just can't let people preach and teach lies. You have to expose the lie so that people will hear and they will understand the truth. And in a congregation like this, we have to speak the truth and tell what Jesus said so you know which preachers that you need to avoid and which churches that you need to avoid. And so with this stinging rebuke, of the scribes and Pharisees, they, they come at Jesus once again, and they're trying to put more doubt into the people's minds about him. And so they came and asked Jesus to show them some sign that he truly was the Messiah. Now, these people thought that the scribes and Pharisees knew what they were doing. They are the leaders. They're the ones that, that know the scriptures better than anyone else. And so if they go and ask Jesus for a sign, then it must mean there, there must be another sign. There, there must be something that Jesus hasn't done to prove that he truly is the Messiah. Now, folks, what this tells us is that every one of us, everyone here, you need to study the word of God for yourself. You ought not to be too trusting of preachers so that you accept what they say without personally investigating Scripture. Everything that I say from this pulpit needs to be scrutinized. Don't trust me to the point that you swallow everything that I say without any investigation. And you know, I've got an amen on that. You know, as, I, as I've often told you, I always tell you this. I'm open to the scrutiny. I invite that scrutiny because if you prove me wrong, then you've helped me. You've helped yourself. You've helped everybody that is in this church. If 
we're teaching something that's wrong that needs to be corrected. So this is where we are in this text. And, and I highlighted this skepticism in the, the first point of the message that we discussed last week, and that was the refusal to accept the Savior, the refusal to believe in him. And so we have to wonder about this. What more could Jesus have done? And why didn't they think that he'd given enough proof to validate the claim he was the Son of God and he is the Savior of the world? Well, I don't think that they were really interested in seeing another sign. They'd already seen what Jesus could do. But really, they're asking here for more proof, thinking that they could demand from Jesus something that he was unable to do. That, and they were quite sure that if Jesus was to do what they were asking him to do, or couldn't do rather, that would prove he, he can't be the Son of God. He can't be the Messiah. Now, without going into a long explanation of that, there is a text that parallels the same kind of doubt in Matthew chapter 16. And we learned there that these people were actually looking for a sign that Jesus would give them something done in the heavens. Now, the type of sign that they were looking for was that Jesus would change the course of nature. They wanted him to do something like rearranging the stars or keep the sun from rising in the morning. Perhaps they wanted him to do what was done in the days of Joshua when the sun stood still. In Joshua, the scripture says, this is in Joshua chapter 10, and the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So what if Jesus could do that type of miracle? Well, they thought there was no way that he could. And so if he can't do something like this, something that God does, then that would prove once and for all that he's not the Christ. But the truth is that if Jesus had done something like this, it wouldn't have been enough. These are stiff-necked. They are obstinate people. They're just like their fathers before them, just like Israel was before that denied the prophets and killed them, even though those prophets did these very kinds of miracles. So Jesus called these people a wicked and an adulterous generation. They were just like rebellious Israel centuries before, just like Israel was when they turned to false gods and began to worship idols. Adultery is the comparison that Jesus used, and what we would call that is a type of a spiritual adultery, and this is where they begin to follow false gods rather than worshiping the true God that they belong to. And this is what was happening with these people. Here, the Messiah has come, he's in the world, and they refuse to believe that he truly is their king. And it was typical of the Jews to ask for signs. They always wanted some kind of validation, never willing to accept simply what the Word of God says, not just to listen to what God has to tell them. We have to see a sign. Now, I want to move on today to show you that they would get their sign. A sign would be given, but it was one that they had to wait for and one that would prove without doubt who he was because Jesus was going to do what no person has ever done before, no, not any person has ever done since. This was something that Jesus would do in the very end of his ministry to prove that he truly is the promised Messiah. So we're going to look at this today, the, the response of the authenticating sign. What is that sign that Jesus said that they will receive? They say to him, Master, we would see a sign from thee. 
And Jesus responds, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas, or Jonah, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus takes them back to an Old Testament story. And this is this wonderful story that we have of Jonah and the whale. So the symbol that Jesus is going to give, the sign, is the symbol of Jonah. I wish I had time to relate that entire story. Uh, You need to read the book of Jonah. It's short, and, and there's some very good lessons to learn there. But one of the things that we learn about it from this particular scripture that we're reading today is that the story is true. It actually happened. It's not a child's bedtime story. Jesus authenticates that story by using it here in this text. And if you believe that Jesus truly is God, then you have to believe what he says here. You must believe that the story of Jonah is true. S. Lewis Johnson pointed out that if you can believe the first chapter of Genesis, then you shouldn't have any doubts about any miracles that follow. But if you refuse to believe the historical account of creation that's found in that first chapter, then you deny God, and you're going to have trouble with all of the miracles that you find in the Bible. What you can't do is you can't pick and choose what you want to believe. If one part is wrong, then the rest of it's wrong. There's no reason to believe any of it, especially when we come to this particular issue, and that is the resurrection of the dead. Why should we believe the resurrection of the dead if we can't believe anything else that Jesus said about things that happened in Scripture. So the problem here is not really, it's not really, can you believe that a great fish swallowed Jonah and spit him back up? That's actually the easy part of the story. Did you know that? That's really the easy part of the story of Jonah and whale. You know what the real hard parts are? The fact that God created an ocean, and God created dry land, and God created a fish... And God created a man. I mean, you look at the anatomy and the physiology of our, bo- of our bodies, and you see what God has done in creating all of this, you should have no trouble at all with Jonah and the whale. So Jesus says the sign that will be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what was Jonah told to do? Jonah was told to go and to preach in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a wicked idolatrous Gentile city. And then Jonah was not too fond of Gentiles. He was like most of the Jews of his time. He didn't want to go and preach to these dirty Gentiles. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he decided that he would get on a ship and he would go in the opposite direction. And while he was on his way away from Nineveh, God caused a storm to come on the sea. And Jonah knew knew why God had caused the storm. It was because of him. He had disobeyed God. And so in doing that, he had imperiled the lives of everyone that was on that ship. And the only way to save those people was for Jonah to be thrown overboard, for him to just be thrown overboard and settle the matter. And Jonah fully expected when he told them to throw him overboard that he was going to drown. He fully expected that. So Jonah was going to get his way one way or the other. He didn't want to go to preach to Nineveh. And so if God was determined to do that, Jonah says, let me die instead. And so he was thrown overboard. But what Jonah wasn't expecting was that God had prepared this great fish. So as soon as he goes overboard, the fish opens up his mouth and swallows Jonah. 
And there was Jonah in the belly of that whale or the great fish. And for three days and three nights he was there and he was being swished around in all the gastric juices of that whale's belly. And for three nights he was, three days and three nights he was in great despair. And you read the book of Jonah and you find that during that time that he was there he got right with God. And after three days that fish vomited Jonah out on the seashore. Uh, you can just imagine what Jonah looked like when he came out. His head, rest of his body wrapped in seaweed and his body bleached by the gastric juices that were in that fish. But he came out of the fish and by that point he was ready to go preach in Nineveh. Well, all of this happened by the providence of God. And I'm sure that this news about Jonah preceded him. He went to the city of Nineveh and here comes this guy that they know came out of a fish. And so they thought that he was from their fish god and they were quite sure that his message was authenticated by the fact that he came out of this fish. I mean, here is a great miracle that's taken place. But when Jonah went to preach in Nineveh, he didn't talk to them about a fish god. He talked to them about Jehovah God. And they repented and they believed. And this city of 120,000 people was, was spared God's destruction. So Jesus took that story... And he used it as a symbol of what would happen to him. And for three days and three nights, he would be in a tomb. He was crucified and laid in that tomb, and there was no doubt that he was dead. There was a mob there, a crowd that witnessed this. They confirmed it. They watched him die. And then his body was put down into that tomb. He was anointed with all the burial spices before he went in. There were grave clothes, linen grave clothes that were placed on him and then he was buried in that cold dark grave and for three days and three nights his body was interred there was no sound that came from within there was no stirring in there he was dead and there wasn't any doubt about it but after three days Jesus would arise they would come to the tomb on that third day and they would find that the stone had been rolled away and the body of Jesus was not in that tomb, but Jesus had come out of the tomb. He had come back to life. He'd risen from the dead. Now, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 2 for just a moment, we'll see here the, how that Jesus spoke of his resurrection in another way. He compares it here to the story of Jonah. And then in John chapter 2, he talks about his body is like the temple. Now, notice... Again, as we look at this, how the Jews asked for a sign. And, and this was right after Jesus had gone in and cleansed the temple. He'd driven out the money changers there. And he'd ruined a money-making scheme of these, of these Jews. And they asked him, by what authority do you do that? I mean, wh who says that you can come in here and, and tell us to leave the temple? What authority do you have? In verse number 18, John chapter 2, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. So Jesus says, here is what's going to happen to me. If you want a sign, then this will be the sign that you'll get. And this is a sign that trumps all of the others. 
Because there is no one that's ever gone down dead into the tomb and came up under his own power. I mean, that would be as likely for an inanimate rock to suddenly spring to life for a dead man in a tomb to come back to life. Now, the Jews recognize what Jesus was saying here. Now, I want you to go to another scripture. This is Matthew chapter 27, and this is after the crucifixion. This is after Jesus had been laid in the tomb. And we're going to begin reading here in Matthew 27 at verse number 62. And I had a question about this scripture not long ago and what it means. And the answer to it's very appropriate in helping us to understand the text of Matthew 12. But Matthew 27, verse 62, it says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I want you to notice again verse number 64. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Now, what does that mean? The last error shall be worse than the first. Well, the first problem the Pharisees had was to explain away Jesus' miracles. There were healings. There was a storm that was stilled. There were demons that were cast out. He raised people at times from the dead. In fact, the last miracle that he performed was when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and I'm sure that was fresh on their minds. So the first error, as far as they were concerned, was the difficulty of explaining away all the miracles that Jesus did. And we see in our text in Matthew chapter 12 their attempt to do this. They try to explain it away by saying, well, all of the miracles are done by the power of Satan. Well, that didn't work. And so they're constantly struggling with this. And then they also have the problem of the way that the people had received Jesus when he came into Jerusalem on the last week of his life. He came into Jerusalem in the week of the Passion, and he comes in riding on a donkey, and people are throwing palm branches in his way, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So they have this problem, how how the people have received Jesus. So what happens then if the disciples come and they steal away his body, and they say he's risen from the dead? Well, that's something they can't get over. If the people think that he's alive after he's died, then there's no stopping the movement. If they had to kill him to squelch all the previous claims that he made, then what are they going to do with the resurrection? How would they deal with that? Well, they wanted no part of making that mistake, and so they asked Pilate, seal the tomb, put a watch on it, make sure his disciples do not steal the body away, because that's the worst error. If there is a resurrection then we've got serious problems. And you see how that trumps all the others? If Jesus truly arises from the dead, then the movement of Christianity can't be stopped. And you know what happened? Well, of course you know what happened. We're here this morning because Jesus came out of the tomb. 
And that fact swept the Roman Empire in just a few short years. In a few short days, it swept Jerusalem, and there were thousands of people that, were, that came to salvation in Christ, and the church swelled with numbers, with these thousands of witnesses. And now the Jews don't have 12 men to deal with. They don't have Jesus and 12 men to deal with. Now they have thousands of people that have come to Christ because of one fact. Jesus came out of the tomb. And that was far more significant than rearranging stars in the heaven or causing the sun to stand still. I mean, those types of miracles would never do what the resurrection did. If I were to tell you today, the reason that you need to believe in Jesus Christ is because he made the sun stand stand still. I mean, how much effect would that have on you? I mean, how much would that impress you? You find all kinds of stories like that in mythology. They're all over the place. But what if there are people that say we know that jesus is alive there were witnesses to it but we know that he's alive because he lives in our heart we know that he's alive well how much does a fact like that cement you to christianity see this is what the jews knew they knew they could not contend with the resurrection and so if he says that he's coming out of the tomb and he comes out of that tomb then all is lost for them so jesus said this is the only sign that you're going to get This is the one that you're going to get, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days and three nights I will be in the tomb, and then I will arise. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, the superiority of Jesus. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Nineveh is that Gentile city where Jonah went to preach. And when he went there, the people heard the prophet and they believed. Well, let's think about that for a moment. Who is Jonah when you compare him to Jesus? Jonah was a sinful, rebellious man. God told him to go to Nineveh, and he didn't want to go. Jesus is the perfect, sinless son of God. Where do we read about Jonah? And we find him in those little bitty books at the end of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And what do we know about Jesus? He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the one who is the subject of the entirety of the scriptures, the entire holy writ. Jonah preached his message and he hated it while he did Nineveh after Nineveh had repented from their sins and God spared them Jonah was angry about that he went outside the city sat uh, got into a little tent there a little booth that he made and sat there under a gourd and he was angry because Nineveh repented and and God saved wicked Gentiles he hated Gentiles but what about Jesus he loved people he he was compassionate towards them his heart was moved he saw israel as sheep without a shepherd and he knew that the wolves had come these pharisees had come and they had chewed on the people and mangled them they're mangled by false prophets and so he wept over the city of jerusalem there was grace and mercy that poured from his heart and streamed from his lips and that's because jesus desires the salvation of every person jonah came with a message of doom. His message was short. So short, in fact, that 
probably most of you wish that I was more like Jonah. But this is the entirety of the message that we find recorded in Scripture, what Jonah said. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all we have in the Scripture that he said. Now, he may have said a little bit more than that, but he was preaching doom. He's a prophet of doom. But what is it that Jesus preached? He preached, trust me, believe in me, come to me, and I'll give you rest. That was a message of grace. It's the message that God receives unworthy sinners, that people can be saved through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. See, Jesus was far superior to Jonah. And so if Nineveh repented of their sins and they had this imperfect prophet, they have only one miracle, that's the fact that he came out of a fish, that's all that he has to attest to his authenticity, then how should they react to the sinless Son of God who preached and accompanied that preaching with thousands of miracles? All of them verified the message was authentic. So Nineveh has one prophet. They have one man. They have Jonah. But Israel had dozens of prophets that came to them. And before Jesus came, they had John the Baptist to preach to them. Then Jesus preached. They had the apostles to preach, and yet they wouldn't believe. And then Jesus takes this a step further. He talks about Solomon and and the visit of the Queen of Sheba. What did she do? Well, she heard about Solomon, his riches, and his wisdom. And so she traveled this great long distance to see for herself and to hear for herself what Solomon had to say. And, And so she was stunned when she arrived. She saw the riches of his kingdom. She saw the happiness of his servants, and she was overwhelmed by it. And who is Jesus? He's greater than Solomon. Solomon had the wealth of his kingdom, but Jesus owns the entire world. He has the wealth of the earth. It's by him, Scripture says, all things are made, and by him all things consist. Solomon is the king of one country, that's of Israel, and yet who is Jesus but the king of the universe? And this contrast is put here to show us that for all the advantages that Israel had, they still would not believe. They were indifferent to the message of grace. They have the eternal Son of God right in their midst, and yet they crucify the king. Now, that was a very serious problem for them. I think you can see that, isn't it? It's a very serious problem. But, folks, it is also, we need to consider this, it is also a very serious problem for us. It is a problem for us today. Now, thirdly, I want you to see from these scriptures the reckoning of accounts to be settled. The reckoning of accounts to be settled. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. There is a day of reckoning coming. There's a day coming. There's a judgment coming in which God is going to settle all the accounts... And we are responsible for the response that we give to the gospel of Christ. The people of Nineveh repented with far less proof than the Jews had. The queen of Sheba came and she saw and she departed believing in the God of Israel and how God had blessed Solomon. She believed with less information than the Jews of Jesus' time had. Now here is a very important point for all of us to remember though that our generation is under greater condemnation. We are under greater condemnation than even these Jews. Now, do you know what the Jews were lacking when Jesus spoke these words? This was before the cross. This was before 
the resurrection. And so they're asked to believe in a future event. Their light was less than ours because we live after the cross. We live after the resurrection. We have the completed word of God, and they didn't. We have all 66 books of the Bible that explain the entire story of Jesus and how that he came to save us from our sins. We're able to correlate all of those facts and put the whole thing together to see the big picture We have the overview, we have the framework, we have the structure of all of this that's given in the Word of God. We even have the book of Revelation that gives us a picture of what happens in the second coming of Christ. And we have a clear picture of that now, and the Jews had none of that. We can see how all of this works together in a way they couldn't see. And so with greater light comes greater responsibility. So do you think God is going to excuse those that don't believe? Do you think the Jews were worse off because they carried out the crucifixion? I mean, what about you? What do you know? I mean, can you hear the story that's here in the Bible and and see all of this and walk away from the gospel of Jesus Christ with total indifference? Who's going to experience the greater condemnation? Is it those who can't see the whole redemptive story, that don't have all of the Bible, that don't have all the pieces of the puzzle? Or is it those like us who can read all of this and see it? We have the New Testament that explains to us the Old Testament. We see the entire scheme of redemption. And so now the Old Testament that they had has been opened up through the light of the New Testament. Today we have millions of Bibles. The Word of God is being taught around the world. Thousands of good books have been written. Multi-millions of sermons have been preached. So how are you going to stand in the judgment if you don't believe? You see the seriousness of this? You, you would actually be far better off to stand in the crowd on that day that crucified Jesus than you would be to be, here, than to be here right now and hear what I've said, to have the word of God in your hands, to hear the gospel being preached and reject Christ. You'd be far better off to have been in that crowd. So what do you do? What do you do about this? Well, requirement's really no different than for Nineveh. What must you do? Well, what you must do is repent and receive Christ. That's what you need to do, repent and receive Christ. Now, you see, Jesus said the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. They believed that, that Jehovah God is the true God. You know, someone told me the other day that theological terms were a little bit difficult for them. And sometimes I'm guilty of this, of thinking that everybody understands every word that I say. And so if I say justification or sanctification, imputation, expiation, propitiation, sometimes I just go on and I think you do very clearly understand what I mean. But that might not be the case. And I don't want it to be the case when we talk about the word repentance. We need to fully understand what the Bible means when it says that you must repent of your sins. What does that mean to repent? Well, it means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of actions. It means to turn from one course and to follow another course. It means to realize that you are a sinner and to sorrow over those sins and to turn away from them. That's what God requires. The Apostle Paul preached that God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so when is it that you repent? Well, it's when you understand that you've broken God's holy commandments. 
It's when you understand that you're guilty before God. And when you understand there's nothing you can do to help yourself, it's when you understand, as the Scripture says, that you are under the wrath of God. And when you understand all of that, and you understand that you can't help yourself, that's when you repent. And when you repent, at the same time you receive Christ, because there's nobody that repents that does not believe that Jesus Christ died to save them from their sins. Can you understand the importance of what Jesus says here? He's now risen from the dead. There's abundant proof. There's all the eyewitnesses. There are people that can tell what happened to them since they have received Christ. They can talk about how Christ lives in their hearts. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. If Jesus was dead and in the tomb, I wouldn't bother to talk to you about this. Nothing that I say would make any difference to you. If Jesus is dead, then do what you want. Believe what you will. Just go on, live out your days any way that you want to, because this is the end of it. This is all that there is, so you get as much out of life as you possibly can. But if Jesus is alive, then it changes everything. It tells us that there is life after death. And, and can I say this to you as well, that there is also death after death? There's life after death for everyone who believes in Christ, but there is also death after death. There is a conscious eternal existence after death for those who don't believe. And that conscious eternal existence is in the fires of hell. Now, I, I, most people, probably most of you here today, you're not too crazy about going through the first death. I don't think that you are. I'm probably not too many people in here are saying, well, I wish I could die today. How much more do you not want to go through the second death? And that's what the Bible calls it without Christ. It calls it the second death. Now, here's the thing about it. Jesus is not going to give you another sign. I'm not going to levitate today, fly through the air, through the auditorium. I'm not going to heal anybody. I'm not going to cast out any demons. Jesus is not going to appear in this room today and ask you to put your fingers into his nail-scarred hands. And you know why he won't do that? Because he's already given you the greatest sign that he could give. And that is, he arose from the dead. That's the greatest sign. It's the only one he was going to give. So he says, the men of Nineveh are going to rise in judgment against you. They repented with far less than what you know now. So what will you do? Will you repent and receive Christ? Will you repent and believe that he died to save you from your sins? See, Jesus is still the compassionate Savior. He's still holding out his arms to people. And he's still inviting people to come to him. In the end of Matthew 11, you know it well. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, if Jesus had not said that, then I wouldn't preach to you today. He died that you might live. He came out of the tomb that you might live. This is why we have the story of Jonah, Jesus, and judgment. This is why this is in the Bible. He tells us this in Scripture, and he says, I want you to believe it. The question is, will you? Do you believe what he said? 
I'm going to give you one more scripture and we'll be done today. Now, Jesus said in our text, he says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And here's the last scripture that I want to give you. And this is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That verse actually means there is no judgment for those who believe in Christ. There is no one who believes that Jesus died to save them from their sins who will be judged and condemned for those sins. And that's why Jesus arose from the dead. It's the best news that you'll ever hear, that Jesus is not in that tomb. And he says, believe it, just believe it. And if you believe that, then no one will rise in judgment against you. There is no condemnation, no judgment for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great sign that was given that shows us without doubt that you are our king, that you are the savior of men. We thank you, Lord, that you came into this world and you died for us and then you arose from the grave to show that you have power over sin, death, and hell. Lord, I ask you today that you would speak to someone's heart. If there is someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they can see this very clearly, that judgment is coming and we have all of these facts, we have all of these information, we've been told to believe, and if we do not believe, the judgment is going to be far, far worse for us than any generation that has ever lived before us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to someone's heart today, help them, cause them to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Christians, we pray that you'd help us to reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and how important that is for our faith and the real reason why we can even be here today. Lord, bless us. Bless us as we sing. Speak to your people and to those who need to come to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.